All right, so this is the recording for Joel chapter 3. If this one sounds a little different, it's because Thursday night I either didn't push the button or it didn't record. <laughs> so for some reason went to upload it and it's not there. So I'm going to try and run through Joel chapter 3 quickly for those of you who couldn't make it. Um, or if you're just listening later again, so this one might sound a little different. So Joel chapter 3. We're moving into the last chapter here in our last point. We're talking about national restoration. That's point six, if you have the full notes there. And we're going to get from Joel 3, verse 1, all the way to verse 17. So as we looked at last week at the end of Joel chapter 2, Joel is clearly um, foretelling an event, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that's going to take place in the last days, as Peter picks up in Acts 2. So he talks about how there's going to be a material restoration. That's uh, chapter 2, verse 18, and following in Joel, there's going to be a spiritual restoration. That's Joel 2, 28 to 32. And then finally, here we come to a national restoration. And he starts in Joel 3, verse 1. He says, For behold, in those days and at that time, those words clearly calling us back to, in particular, Joel chapter 2. He's talking about this last day's context, the last days, this series of events where God fulfills all of his promises. And clearly in Joel, he's been talking about the day of the Lord, right? The day of the Lord is on the horizon. For behold, in those days and at that time, again, I think there's another reason why I don't think Joel has a timeline he's operating from. I think he's simply saying these events, these things, this material restoration, the spiritual restoration, this national restoration, all of these blessings will happen in the last days. Specifically, on that spectrum, in that timeline of the last days, um, I don't think Joel exactly knows. It's not until we come to the New Testament that we realize there's some space, some distance between these restorations. Um, and so when those things take place. But that phrase there, for behold, in those days and at that time, I wanted you guys to notice this, that same exact phrase occurs three other times in the Old Testament, all three of them in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 33, 15, Jeremiah 50, verse 4, and Jeremiah 50, verse 20. And I wanted you to just listen to these verses, and you'll see clearly that these uh, verses, there's an eschatological end times context. So Jeremiah 33, starting in verse 14, says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, there's that exact same phrase, says, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell Securely, and this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. So Jeremiah, and by the way, this is in the context earlier, chapter 31, talking about the new covenant, this glorious restoration where God will work in the hearts of his people. And later he talks about, in those days, at that time, this last day's context, the righteous branch of David, which we know clearly to be the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself, he's going to execute justice and righteousness in the land. And also, in those days, Judah's going to be saved, Jerusalem's going to dwell securely. So, you see clear prophecy of the Lord reigning um, and his people being restored. Jeremiah 50, 
Verse 4, in those days and in that time, there's that exact same phrase again, declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah shall come together, weeping as they come, they shall seek the Lord their God. So there you see a promise of the divided kingdom being reunited. That's what he's saying there, the people of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, those ten tribes, the people of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, they're going to come together. Verse 5, they shall ask the way to Zion with faces turned toward it, saying, come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will never be forgotten. So here you see uh, restored Israel joining themselves to an everlasting covenant with the Lord, very significant. And then also verse 20 in that same chapter, Jeremiah 50, verse 20, in those days and in that time, same exact phrase again, declares the Lord, iniquity shall be sought in Israel, the northern kingdom, and there shall be none, and sin in Judah, the southern kingdom, and none shall be found. For I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. So you see a northern kingdom, a southern kingdom, they're being reunited. And if you guys know anything about the prophets and just the Old Testament, Israel is sinful, very, very sinful. That's the problem. Well, here, Jeremiah is seeing a day where Israel will not have sin. There will be no sin in Israel, for I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. So there's a righteous remnant. And so I just wanted you to notice, um, it's a very key phrase I think that Joel is using and Jeremiah picks up on, referring to the same latter days or last days context where all of these promises, Christ reigning on the throne from Jerusalem, Israel being restored, there's going to be uh, an everlasting covenant in place. There's going to be no sin found amongst the people of Israel. And Jeremiah, or excuse me, Joel picks up that phrase as well. It says, For behold, in those days and at that time, this is just continuing on, Joel 3, verse 1, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. That word there for fortunes is used extensively in the prophets, especially Jeremiah um, and Ezekiel, referring to the restoration of, of Israel to their land. Sometimes some translations they'll say, when I restore the captivity rather than fortunes. It's anticipating uh, the exile and the people being brought back to the land. And so you see it, like I said, many times in Jeremiah. You also see it, and this is very significant for our purposes in Joel, in Deuteronomy, right? If you guys have been in this class or listening to these lectures, you know that Joel is preaching Deuteronomy especially Deuteronomy 28 and 30, which earlier in Deuteronomy 4, verse 30, he says, when all these things come upon you, the tribulation um, comes upon you in the last days. And so there's a last days context even to what Deuteronomy has been saying. Joel has been picking up on that. He's called the people to turn to the Lord with all their heart, which is what Deuteronomy 30 talks about. Well, Deuteronomy 30, verse 3, says, when they return to the Lord, with all their heart and their soul, verse 3, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes. Exact same phrase there in Deuteronomy 30, verse 3, found here in Joel 3, verse 1. And so you see clearly that Joel is still in this Deuteronomy context. When I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 2, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there. So again, in this context of restoration, in this context where God is going to restore Israel, 
we see clearly that God is also going to pronounce judgment. Judgment is coming. Chapter 2 talks about how the day of the Lord is coming on Israel. Now he's broadening this out to all the nations as well. Judgment is going to come on all the nations and even those in Israel who do not turn to the Lord, right? There's a righteous remnant that is not judged, but anyone who does not turn to the Lord with all their heart and their soul, as Deuteronomy says, will receive this judgment. Uh, Jehoshaphat simply means Yahweh judges. That's what the Hebrew word means. Uh, Shaphat, the second part of uh, that name there. The first half is just Yahweh, or Jehovah, uh, Yahweh, God himself. Yahweh judges. So that's what this means. I will bring them down to the valley of where Yahweh judges, and I will enter into judgment with them there. So you see the word play that Joel is making there. Yahweh is going to judge. He's going to enter into judgment. There's almost like this courtroom analogy. This is the, the valley of God's verdict coming down. He's going to enter into judgment with all the nations. Continuing on, verse 2, on behalf of my people and my heritage. Notice the very clear notes of possession here, right? On behalf of my people, my heritage, because they, the nations, have scattered them, Israel, among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people. And I think here what you're seeing is that Joel is talking about um, the exile of Israel as a whole. I don't think he's referring specifically to the Babylonian captivity or the Assyrian captivity even. I think he's talking about all of Israel's exiles collectively. Because if you notice, he says, scattered them among the nations, plural. Well, when they were taken into captivity by Assyria first, that's just one nation. Or when they were taken into captivity by uh, the Babylonians, that's just one. I think he's talking about they've been scattered among the nations even to this day that Israel is still in exile, I would argue. Even though some of them have returned to the land, I would say that this is referring to collectively Israel's history um, uh, being taken into exile, that they will return to the land. He says, verse 3, they've cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. And I mean, this really should hit you heavy. I mean, this is incredibly cheap human trading. I mean, there's just the shock value of the devaluing of people here. Have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine. I mean, just think about that. Selling someone into slavery for a bottle of wine. You know, I mean, I don't know, a cheap bottle of wine, these, you know, 20 bucks. You know, the price of a human life simply being equated to a $20 cheap bottle of wine. And so you just see the evil, the wickedness of what is going on here, what these nations have done to God's people. I think it's also significant in Amos chapter 2, verse 6. God has been condemning all the nations. He comes to Israel, and notice what he says here. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver, and the needy they sell for a pair of sandals. And so, in Amos 2, verse 6 there, the prophet is condemning Israel for trading people, for selling people into slavery, clearly condemned. Um, in Exodus and Leviticus. 
And so you just see the evil of what's going on here among the nations, but also Amos condemns Israel for doing exactly that. And so you see this wickedness of what's going on. This is why God is going to enter into judgment with all the nations. Joel 3, verse 4. God continues speaking. He says, What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? So just if you're wondering what these places are, uh, Tyre and Sidon would be the two, two of the major cities of Phoenicia. And so Phoenicia was... Um, if you're looking at Israel on a map, Phoenicia would be to the north, and these two cities would have been on the coast, okay? He's condemning those cities, and then all the regions of Philistia, think of the Philistines, we're familiar with them, right? You know, we see some of their cities like Gath, uh, Gaza, Ashkelon, um, there's other Philistine cities as well, but they would have been to the south of Israel, and so you kind of see these neighboring cities. These would kind of be the proverbial kind of thorn in the flesh constantly, especially early on in Israel's history. They're not the big bad guys that come on the scene of Assyria and Babylon, but these would have been some of these nations that were continually, um, uh, I would say, a thorn in Israel's side, um, especially early on, which is also why I think Joel's probably written early, probably uh, ninth or 8th century, uh, because by once, especially once you get to the end of the 8th and 7th century, Assyria is the dominant power, and then Babylon. Well, here, Joel, I think, is looking at these two main powers, kind of in the local regions of Israel's history. And so, he says here, are you paying me back for something? If you're paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. Basically, what God is saying here through Joel is he's saying, have I done anything evil so that you're doing this to Israel. Like, God is saying, what have I done that you're doing this evil of attacking the people, um, stealing from them, taking their people, selling them into slavery? And basically, he's saying, hey, what you have done, it's going to be done to you. You know, kind of the eye for eye, tooth for tooth. If you've done this, the payment is going to return on your head speedily. This is coming. Verse 5, he says, for you've taken my silver. Again, you notice these strong personal pronouns of the Lord. It's my silver and my gold, and you've carried my rich treasures into your temples. It's a good reminder for us, even our possessions today, they're not really our possessions. It's always been the Lord's. Verse 6, you've sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks. So think of, you know, Greece, Asia, Asia Minor, you know, modern-day Turkey, farther up there, right? These Phoenicians and the Philistines, they've sold the people of Israel to them, in order to remove them far from their own border. What's interesting is actually in 2 Chronicles 21 and 2 Kings 8, they're parallel accounts, um, but they actually talk about during the reign of Jehoram, who's a king in Israel in the 9th century BC, it talks about the Philistines invading and plundering Israel um, and actually taking their stuff and taking their people into captivity. And so I think this clearly it could be a possible link there that that's what Joel is actually referring to. He's referring to that wickedness, but you know, you need to do more homework there, I think. But it's just an interesting link to note. That's 2 Kings 8 and 2 Chronicles 21. But he says in verse 7, behold, I will stir them up. Who's the them? The them is the Israel that's been taken into captivity. I will stir captive Israel up from the place to which you've sold them. This is among all the nations where they've been scattered. And I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans. 
with the Sabaeans, think of like modern day Saudi Arabia, the southern tip down there. That's where they would have been, somewhere down there. I'll sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. He ends there. This will happen. The Lord has clearly spoken. He has purposed this to happen. These evil nations, these evil cities, look, you have sold the children of Israel into slavery. Now the children of Israel are going to sell you into slavery. This is going to happen. And so basically, from an interpretation point of view, we essentially have two options. Either this happened probably historically, either during the um, conquest of Alexander the Great, right? So he would have conquered this region uh, in around 330-ish BC. And so we actually have historical accounts um, of this happening where he takes um, the Phoenicians and the Philistines captive and there would have been Jews in the land that he would have possibly sold them to. That's a certain, certainly a possibility. Or the second one, which is what I would lean to, is probably this is something still to come in the future, um, especially given Joel's eschatological context. Okay? He's been talking about in the last days. In the last days, all these things are going to happen. And so I don't know exactly what that is going to look like or when that would take place. But if we're just interpreting the text on its own terms, it still seems to me that this is going to take place in the latter days or the last days context. And so that seems to be um, what Joel is doing here. And so he's kind of zoomed in. I, I think what Joel is doing here, this kind of this parentheses, you know, kind of verses four to eight are kind of an interruption. Um, it kind of seems what Joel is doing here is he's zooming in on verse 2. So in, in Joel 3, verse 2, he says, I'm going to gather all the nations, bring them into judgment. Okay, all these things are going to happen to them. Well, it almost seems as if Joel is saying, hey, all this judgment is going to come on the nations. And then he zeroes in on some local nations um, that were oppressing Israel in that day. Right? So Tyre and Sidon, and the Philistine cities are a part of all the nations. He's zeroing in and saying, hey, this is what the day of the Lord judgment is going to look like on you guys. And then he zooms back out in Joel 3 verse 9 to all the nations. So he zooms in, focuses on a couple of nations, um, specifically operating powerfully in Joel's day. And then he zooms back out, verse 9, proclaim this among the nations. He's calling them all to war, consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. So Joel, go and proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate. It's literally a usual word that we translate as, you know, sanctify, holy. Make ready for a holy purpose. Set it apart as holy. Well, here, God is calling the nations, hey, prepare yourselves to enter into a holy war. And just kind of spoiler alert, it's not going to go well for the nations. <laughs> They have been set apart for God's purpose of judgment. They will be judged. I mean, you see this earlier in Joel uh, 1, 14 and 2, 15 and 16, right? Where he's saying, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, right? He's calling Israel to do a holy thing. Well, here he's calling the nations to set themselves apart to be judged. He says, stir up the mighty men. Uh, oftentimes it's a word translated as wake up. So you kind of see the picture here. God is the one who's going to judge these nations. He's going to bring war upon them. And you kind of see 
the, the irony here, he's, it's almost like he's surprise attacking the enemy. Typically, you know, when you surprise attack an enemy, you take them out in their sleep, right? Well, here he's saying, look, wake them up. You're going to need all the guys you can get. Stir up the mighty men. Wake them up. Bring them into battle before Yahweh because you're going to need all the help that you guys can muster. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Go ahead. Get everyone. Get anyone. Get your best fighters. Verse 10. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Now, this is significant. You're going to see essentially the identical language of this verse in Isaiah 2, verse 4, and Micah 4, verse 3, which Micah is just quoting uh, Isaiah or vice versa. But you see the exact opposite. So if you listen to Isaiah 2, verse 4, which, by the way, this is in the context of the last days. Joel 2 starts by saying, It shall come to pass in the last days, or in the latter days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established at the highest of the mountains, shall be lifted up, all the nations shall flow to it, many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways. So you see this glorious picture of restoration, this glorious picture of where God is reigning from his throne in Jerusalem, and all the nations, not just Israel, all the nations will come and worship the Lord. So it's this glorious time of peace and prosperity. And then you come down to verse 4, says he, referring to God himself, shall judge between the nations. He'll uh, decide disputes for many peoples. Now listen to this. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. It's the exact opposite of what we see here in Joel. Joel says they're going to take their garden uh, instruments, you could say, and they're going to turn them into weapons. Isaiah takes that and flips that. And says there's going to be this glorious time where they will take all their weapons and they're going to turn them into garden instruments. Because, as he goes on to say in Isaiah, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So there's going to be this glorious time of peace and prosperity. And Micah 4 verse 3, by the way, says um, the same thing. It's the exact, um, or excuse me, it's the exact opposite though here in Joel. Joel is saying, look, you're going to need every single weapon that you can get. Go ahead, wake up the troops, get your best fighters, get every single weapon that you can muster because the Lord is about to enter into judgment with you all. And then the last line of verse 10, let the weak say, I am a warrior, or let the weak say, I am strong. And I just find this kind of funny. You know, there's that song, you know, let the weak say, I am strong. Let the poor say, I am rich. Okay, <laughs> well, that first line comes from this verse here. And what's that song? Give thanks? Yeah. It's not in context, <laughs> okay? This is a weak person saying, I am strong for the purpose of fighting God. <laughs> like, that's not good. You don't want to be this weak person that is saying, hey, look, I'm strong. I'm going to fight against God. Right? This is in the context of judgment on all the nations where they're all gathering themselves to get every weapon they possibly can to fight against God. Continues on, verse 11, hasten and come. He's calling on all the nations, all you surrounding nations. In other words, I don't think there's going to be any nation left on the sidelines. Every single nation is going to be in this judgment. And gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. So if you notice that last line, 
If Joel's been summoning all the nations, get everyone you possibly can. He's told them to come up. Here, he says to the Lord, bring down your warriors. So you see that contrast with come up in Joel 3 verse 9 and the Lord bringing down his holy warriors. Just for what it's worth, I think Zechariah 14 um, and other passages in um, I believe Ezekiel, especially in Revelation, obviously, are talking about this day when the Lord will enter into judgment and bring down his warriors. Verse 12, let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. So you see again that wordplay that Joel is doing, right? The valley of where Yahweh judges, for there I will sit to judge. This is the, the valley of the final verdict. This is, you know, God is the judge, jury, and the executor, right? All those things are going to be brought out in this judgment. Again, on all the surrounding nations, this is universal judgment, which makes sense, especially because earlier in Joel, you know, the day of the Lord language already has clearly let us know that this day of the Lord judgment is on all the nations. It's on any and all nations. Verse 13 Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. So here Joel introduces these agricultural metaphors describing a bloodbath of judgment, right? We see these agricultural metaphors very clearly. You've got this guy out with his sickle, you know, harvesting the the wheat or something like that. Go in, tread. You've got this guy in a winepress, you know, pressing out the grapes, the vats overflow. Um, it's just kind of ironic if you think about it, because historically, what's just taken place in Israel? A locust plague, right? Which has eaten and devoured absolutely everything. And so Joel, I think, is, is picking up that agricultural metaphor and describing judgment. You see this type of harvest language, um, uh, harvesting as a metaphor for judgment, Elsewhere in the Old Testament, right, you can think of Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63, where he talks about um, the Lord, where he has trodden the winepress alone. He says, I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. It's a very clear picture of the Lord entering into judgment against those who do not turn to him. Micah 4.13 talks about this as well. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. Um, He goes on to say, shall beat in pieces many people, devote their gain to the Lord. Judgment is coming. You see that agricultural metaphor again. Matthew uh, 13, Jesus talks about this in the parable of the weeds, right? Talks about how the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. He's talking about how, you know, this, this field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil ones. So you have um, these evil ones that do not turn to the Lord that are sprouting up, you know, kind of as this picture of the, of the weeds. He says in verse 40, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The son of man, Jesus, will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So clearly, all these passages referring to a eschatological end times final judgment 
and they all use this agricultural metaphor. Obviously, Revelation 14 and 19 also talk about that as well. And you can just see, I mean, if you're just, what's going on in verse 13? How are we getting there? Just keep reading, okay? Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe, okay? What's the harvest? What are we talking about? For the wine press is full, okay? The vats overflow, for their evil is great. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the sinfulness of mankind. It's overflowing. It's ready for harvest. It's ready to be, um, you know, pressed out in the wine press. And so I think you clearly see in this verse too is that there is an exactly right appointed time by God to finally judge the world. You know, it's easy for us to look around and see with everything going on and Lord, please come quick because you need to judge all this wickedness going on. Well, the Lord has an appointed day that there is an exactly right time where God says, today is the day of judgment. When the world's evil is great, the Lord will enter into judgment. By the way, just a reminder, this is all referring to, we have this massive, multinational, international, corporate army like we've never seen before coming to fight against God, and God will judge them. Verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Here's real quick that word for Uh, multitudes. It's a word typically referring to a noisy, agitated crowd, a whole rabble of people. And it makes sense. You know, if you ever go to a place where there's a huge crowd, typically it's really noisy. Everyone's chatting, talking. Well, he's stressing this here. He mentions it twice. Multitudes, multitudes. This is a large group of people like we've never seen before. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Just real quick, what's going on there, valley of decision? I think he's referring to the exact same valley of Jehoshaphat. This is where the Lord is going to enter into judgment. Valley of decision is not referring to the people coming into the valley, and now they have a decision to make. They can either, you know, run to the Lord or reject him and fight him. That's not what decision is talking about. It's talking about the Lord's decision, the Lord's verdict, in other words, right? He's saying, This is the Lord's decision, the Lord's day of judgment. He is going to pronounce the verdict and enter into judgment. That is what in the valley of decision means. He says what? For the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord is finally upon these people. The day of judgment has finally come when this happens. And we know that from verse 15. Verse 15 says, the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. We've seen this in Joel already, right? You remember Joel 2, verse 10? This is in that context of the day of the Lord, this day of judgment. What does it say? The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. You see it again in Joel 2, 31. Sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood right before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So in other words, you know that when the sun and moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining, that the day of the Lord is the very next thing. Well, Joel 3.15 is saying, look, the sun and moon are darkened, the stars have withdrawn their shining. This is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord has finally come. The great day of judgment has finally arrived on all of these people. That's what for the day of the Lord is near means. The day of the Lord is upon them. This day of judgment. 
And by the way, Jesus picks up on this in Matthew 24, right? Remember his Olivet Discourse? Matthew 24, 29. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Sounds very familiar to what we're seeing here in Joel. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, all the nations, because judgment is coming for them. They'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he, that's Jesus, will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And so Jesus, in particular, is picking up the language of Joel, talking about this great day of the Lord, this judgment that is coming Joel 3, verse 16, says the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. You kind of see this is the Lord responding to the multitudes, right? So in verse 14, if the multitudes are just this loud, crazy, agitated crowd, they're noisy, they're causing a great commotion. Well, now the Lord speaks. The Lord responds. And how does he respond? He responds in judgment. He is going to judge. I wanted you to notice this as well. If you guys have your physical Bibles, you should just be able to just turn the page one. In Amos chapter 1, Amos chapter 1 verse 2, this is how Amos begins his prophecy, begins his message. He says, and if this reminds you of something, it should. He says, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem the exact same two lines that we see here in Joel. Amos just picks those up. And so what you see here, Joel is talking about judgment, the day of the Lord, that's going to come on all the nations. Judgment is coming. Amos picks up on that, and he declares judgment on all the nations. He goes through this list of all these surrounding nations before finally zeroing in on um, Israel and Judah and saying judgment is coming for you as well. But I think that textual link is significant where Joel has been saying, hey, here's what the day of the Lord uh, is going to look like. Amos picks up where Joel left off at the end of his book. Amos starts his prophecy expounding more on that judgment. And you see that because he quotes, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. Joel keeps going. He says, and the heavens and the earth quake. Again, we already saw this in Joel 2 verse 10. In this context of the day of the Lord, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble. This is the final day of the Lord's judgment. But, second half of verse 16, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. And so you see, in this context of judgment, in this context of the day of the Lord, this great day that no one can escape, God is a refuge and stronghold to his people, to those who flee to him. If you have turned to the Lord, right? If you have um, trusted in him alone. And this is this righteous remnant that Joel has been desiring to create. Remember, we talked about Joel 2, 12 to 17, that righteous remnant, yet even now, return to me. These are those who have turned to the Lord. They are a refuge and stronghold to, or excuse me, he, um, the Lord, is a refuge and stronghold to his people I thought this was significant. The only other verse in the Old Testament that uses the words refuge and stronghold together is Isaiah 25, verse 4. Isaiah 25, verse 4. If you know Isaiah, Isaiah chapters 24 to 27, 
is kind of what we call like Isaiah's apocalypse or like the Isaiah's mini apocalypse. Isaiah's got a lot of stuff going on in it that, you know, for some of us seems like crazy language. But Isaiah 24 to 27 in particular <laughs> uh, really have some, uh, you know, interesting language to say the least. This is why we call it Isaiah's apocalypse. But Isaiah 25 is this glorious passage um, where he talks about how in verse 7, verse 8, in verse 8, actually, I'll just read that. And, and this should sound familiar to you guys. Isaiah 25, verse 8 says, He, God, will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. I mean, clearly, we see that language picked, picked up in the New Testament, right? Referring to the new heavens, the new earth, the new creation. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Revelation 20, um, or 21 and 22. Well, in that same chapter, Isaiah 25 talks about how the Lord is a stronghold and a refuge to his people. It's, that, it's the only other place in the Old Testament. Here in Joel 3.16 and Isaiah 25 verse 4. And clearly Isaiah 25 is referring to an end times, last days uh, context. Where God will swallow up death forever and he'll wipe away every tear. In that day of judgment. In the final day of judgment, the Lord is our refuge and stronghold. He's continually and constantly our shelter. And what does this look like exactly? Well, I think that's what you see in verse 17 of Joel. Joel 3.17, this is God literally dwelling amongst his people. Verse 17, he says, So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. God will vindicate himself for his people Language is very similar to Joel 2, 27, where he's talking about this uh, righteous remnant that will know the Lord because he is going to dwell amongst his people. Uh, this very key Old Testament uh, language of Zion and uh, Jerusalem, my holy mountain, I would argue all referring to the same place. Very key. Uh, we already saw this in Isaiah 2, right? In the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be lifted up that all the people flow to. And you see the significance of Jerusalem, the significance of Zion, when the Lord will dwell there. Second half of verse 17, and Jerusalem shall be holy, the same place. Why is it holy? Because God is holy and God is going to be there. He's going to dwell in his city amongst his people in a way that he has not uh, to this date yet done. And strangers shall never again pass through it. What's he saying there with strangers? I think he's referring to, you know, non-Israelite, Gentile nations. Um, he's not saying that Gentiles won't be able to worship the Lord and rightly relate to God. Um, I mean, very clearly, that's not what he's saying, because as Gentiles today, uh, we have access to the Lord through the uh, ultimate seed of Abraham, Jesus, as Galatians 3 talks about. We have access to him. I think what he's saying here is that strangers, these non-Israelite or Gentile nations, will never conquer Jerusalem again. It's never going to be a reproach among the nations, um, as he's talked about in Joel 2. And so he's saying there's going to be this glorious, glorious future, glorious restoration of the Lord's city, of the Lord's people, when he will dwell amongst his people. And so that's the end of uh, Joel 3, 1 to 17. We'll stop there, and 
Our next study is just going to be a wrap-up. We're just going to do Joel 3, 18, 19, 20, 21. So just going to be four verses. And I think it should be really encouraging. So hopefully 1 to 17, you understand uh, this national restoration that is going to take place in the last days.